We'll look this evening at John chapter 2 and verses 13 through 25. The sermon is entitled, The Last Temple. So last week, in, at the beginning of John chapter 2, we saw the first sign. This week we see the last temple. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's living and active Word? The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables." And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to boldly approach the throne of grace to find grace to help in our time of need, we do ask that you might grant this illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we might have eyes to see the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who has become for us the last temple, the dwelling place of God with man. We thank You that He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we praise You that Christ has promised to remain with us to the very end. We pray, our Father, that You might grant that Your Word would indeed be food for our souls in this hour. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, beloved, this afternoon we continue our series through the Gospel according to John. Last time, if you remember... Uh, we saw the first of Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders, namely His changing the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we noted when we looked at that first miraculous sign that such signs aren't new to redemptive history, but they began with the exodus in the days of the prophet Moses. God uses such signs and wonders to signify both judgment and redemption each sign being weighted typically in one direction or the other. 
Now, as we noted, the first sign and wonder of Jesus' public ministry seems to be connected with the first sign and wonder that was ever performed in redemptive history, namely God's turning the water of the Nile into blood. But whereas the previous sign during the Exodus was weighted in the direction of divine judgment, God is judging the Egyptians and their idols for their hard-heartedness, Jesus' sign is weighted in the direction of redemption. He will suffer the same divine judgment that was signified in Egypt during the Exodus, shedding His blood for the propitiation of the sins of all whom the Father gives unto Him. He will drink the cup of wrath and condemnation that they might drink the wine of celebration and redemption. And through this miraculous sign, the text tells us that Jesus manifested His messianic glory and thus strengthened the faith of His disciples. Well, in our text for this afternoon, uh, we find the Lord Jesus and His disciples uh, traveling about 80 80 miles south from the city of Capernaum to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And while there, Jesus cleanses the temple of commerce. When confronted by the temple authorities, and when He's confronted by the temple authorities, He gives His first teaching on the significance of His incarnation and as yet future resurrection from the dead. And what we see in this passage is the clear teaching that the body of the incarnate Son of God is the last, or we might say the true or final or eschatological dwelling place of God with man. We'll divide our text into three sections. The first, verses 13 through 17, where we see the desecration of God's house, the desecration of God's house. The second, verses 18 through 22, where we see the raising up of God's house. And then the third, verses 23 through 25, we see the sanctification of God's house, the sanctification of God's house. So let's begin there in that first section, verses 13 through 17, the desecration of God's house. Look again at verse 13. The text says, the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is now the third time the evangelist has either explicitly mentioned or alluded to the Passover in his gospel. The first was in the ministry of John the Baptist, who you remember called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the second was in connection with Jesus turning water into wine, which finds its significance, if you recall, in the first of the ten miraculous signs that Moses performed during the Exodus, the tenth of which was the Passover. The Passover was a time set apart by God in the law of Moses for commemorating His redeeming His people out of bondage in Egypt by killing the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt, except those that were found within the houses of the Hebrews, which were marked by the blood of the Lamb. And so, during the Passover celebration, during the Passover feast, families would gather together in their houses in order to eat the Passover meal, which included, of course, the Passover lamb, which had been sacrificed earlier in the day. And so at that time, in accordance with the law, Jesus went up to Jerusalem with His disciples in order to observe the Passover. 
the one who is both redeeming God and dying firstborn son or lamb travels up to his house, to his father's house, for the Passover. Look at verse 14. The text says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. It's as if Jesus has gone into his own home. It is his home, isn't it? It's his house. He's the God who indwells the temple. He's gone into his house at the time of the Passover. And there are strangers there corrupting it, you see. It's important to note that when John says, in the temple, he doesn't mean within the holy places, which of course were places only the Aaronic priests were permitted to enter. What he means is the courtyard, the courtyard, and more specifically what had become the outer courtyard of the Gentile God-fearers. This was the section of the temple complex that was designated for those Gentiles who had gained an appreciation for the true religion but had not yet fully revoked their Gentile heritage to become what we might call communicant members of the covenant. Such a place was essential to the life of the Old Testament church. After all, one of the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 was, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Jews fully expected the conversion of the Gentiles, and they worked hard to secure those conversions. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his letters. But they undermined that expectation by desecrating the very religion they sought to spread. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2 and verses 17 through 24. He says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, that's the Gentiles, a light to those who are in darkness, again, that's the Gentiles, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And here we see why that was the case. The court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place for the the hearing of the Word of God as it was taught regularly by the priests of Israel. It was supposed to be a place for the bringing of offerings to the one true and living God who indwelled the temple. It was supposed to be a place for congregational singing as the Gentile God-fearers opened their mouths to sing the praises of the one true and living God. It was supposed to be a place where these Gentile God-fearers could come together in order to cast up their concerns to God, in order to, 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 to share their desires 
with God, to lay their hearts open before God in prayer. In other words, it was supposed to be a place of worship. And yet the Jews who controlled it had turned it into a place of business. What would you think if you, and we don't believe in, we don't believe in holy places, but what would you think if you, at least not on earth, we do believe there's a holy place, but it's in heaven. What would you think if you arrived here next Sunday morning and there was essentially a convenience store set up in the sanctuary and people were coming in and doing their business and you were expected to worship alongside all of that commotion? That might keep you awake, wouldn't it, Tom? <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> No, it would be very hard, wouldn't it? It would be hard to worship with that kind of thing going on, wouldn't it? Very difficult. That's what was happening at the temple when Jesus went in. Now, it should be noted that the kind of business being performed was a necessary one. One couldn't expect those pilgrims who traveled to the temple from long distances to bring their own sacrifices. One couldn't expect the Gentiles who were likely coming from long distances to bring their own sacrifices. So the proper sacrifices were, were bought and sold on site. And there was nothing wrong with that per se. What was wrong was the place in which the buying and selling was happening. By sanctioning such business transactions within the court of the Gentiles, the Jews desecrated the house of God. In other words, they profaned or corrupted or made unclean that which God had set apart as holy. It's as if Moses refused to take off his sandals when God met him at the burning bush and said, remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And so we see the reaction of the Lord Jesus is actually quite mild. Look at verses 15 through 17. The text says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus responds to what he sees with righteous anger. He makes a whip of cords and he uses it to drive out of the temple complex all the sheep and the oxen that were being bought and sold. And then he pours out the coins of the overturned tables of the money changers and overturns, pardon me, the tables of the money changers, those who were converting uh, Gentile money from other regions to money that could be used in Judea. And notice what he tells the sellers of the pigeons. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, that, that was the issue. The house of God was supposed to be a house of worship. A house of covenant renewal and communion with God. It was not supposed to be a convenience store. And those who turned it into such desecrated it. John also adds, his own Spirit-inspired commentary, interpreting the event 
according to Psalm 69 and verse 9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, often that verse is interpreted to indicate that the zeal or the earnest desire itself is what consumes. But when we look at Psalm 69, that's not the case at all. The zeal is not what consumes the one who's concerned with the purity of the house of God. But the occasion by which the zealous person is consumed by the temple authorities. And we'll see that very same thing happen in the ministry of Jeremiah as we make our way through the prophecy of Jeremiah in our current Sunday morning series. Jeremiah will eventually be incarcerated and charged with blasphemy by the temple authorities precisely because he calls those authorities out for their corruption of the place of God's worship. In the same way, The Lord Jesus, the final, the great suffering servant, will be threatened. And so, what we have in Psalm 69 and verse 9 is actually a prophecy of the cross. Zeal for your house will consume me. As the Lord Jesus challenges the authority of those men that are supposed to know better, as he challenges them for corrupting the worship of God at the temple, what we see is that his zeal for the purity of the worship of God is what provokes, it's the initial thing that provokes the Jewish leadership to put him to death. And later, three years down the line, they will indeed put him to death. They will consume him. Now think about that in light of what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. In that text, Paul is addressing the question of why most of the Jews rejected their Messiah. He asks, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel Jealous. In other words, through their rejection of Jesus, which led to and included his crucifixion, salvation came to elect Gentiles as Gentiles. And in turn, through the inclusion of the elect Gentiles as Gentiles, elect Jews will be made jealous and will be saved as well. This is the wisdom of God which comes to bear in the time of the new covenant. And so here we see the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling Psalm 69 and verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me in the context of the court of the Gentiles who will be saved through Israel's rejection of him. Look at verses 18 through 22. We get to the second section where we see the raising up of God's house. Look at verse 18. The text says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things. As we've already seen in the questioning of John the Baptist in chapter 1, the Jews expected the coming of the Messiah at this time. There was much expectation in the region. And they expected it to be accompanied, that coming to be accompanied by prophetic acts, just like the one the Lord Jesus has just performed, along with miraculous signs 
and wonders. And so when Jesus cleanses the temple, they don't question the righteousness of what He does. They question the authority by which He does it. In other words, they want to know if He really thinks He's the Messiah. This is a messianic thing for Him to do. And so they ask Him, what miraculous sign, what miraculous sign will you perform in order to prove your messianic authority? We had to go down to the to the, uh, the DMV this past week and, to, and get our licenses transferred over to Virginia and get our license plates for Virginia and this sort of thing. And we had to prove to them with birth certificates and others, you know, mail and all these sorts of things. We had to prove to them we were really who we said we were. And that's what they're asking Jesus for. They're essentially saying, show us your credentials. What sign will you perform to, to prove to us that you really are the Messiah? Now, we have to remember why they would ask such a thing in the first place, connecting miraculous signs and wonders to the ministry of the Messiah. As we noted last time, the first place we find miraculous signs and wonders in, the redemp- in redemptive history is during the Exodus. And at that time, God empowers Moses by His Spirit to perform miraculous signs and wonders. But why? Why does He do that? Well, He, he tells Moses so that His people Israel will believe that the word Moses speaks to them is in fact his word. In other words, they'll believe that Moses really is his prophet. And so God says in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 9, if they will not believe even in these two signs, that is the staff that becomes a serpent and the clean hand that becomes leprous, if they won't believe even in these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so that's essentially why they're asking Jesus to perform a sign. Moses is going to go on in the book of Deuteronomy to tell Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and 15 and following that the Lord would eventually raise up for His people a prophet like Him. And to Him they must Listen. And so, if Jesus is that prophet like Moses, then he ought to be able to perform signs and wonders like Moses. His word, what he teaches, what he does among the people ought to be confirmed by his performance of signs and wonders. But Jesus never performs such miraculous signs on demand. In fact, when asked the same question on another occasion, you remember that occasion, He rebukes those who ask Him as an adulterous, an evil and adulterous generation. And He tells them the only sign that will be given them is the sign of Jonah, explaining, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the only sign they will be given is His greatest sign, which is His resurrection from the dead. That's, of course, where all of this is headed. John has seven miraculous signs and wonders that he highlights in Jesus' ministry. And then we get to the second half of his gospel in which the focus is on that eighth and greatest sign, which is His resurrection from the dead. But as Jesus teaches in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 and verse 31, even if they see a man raised from the dead, they still won't 
believe. Interesting, interestingly, that's exactly where Jesus is about to go in this encounter with the Jews. He's essentially about to say to them, the only sign you're going to receive is the sign of Jonah. He's going to point them to his resurrection just in a different way. Look at verses 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. There's your sign. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. This isn't the only temple cleansing event that ever happened in Jesus' public ministry. The other evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, narrate a similar event at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. And clearly, these are two different events. And so, Jesus begins His public ministry with the cleansing of the temple, and He ends His public ministry with the cleansing of the temple. But the first cleansing is the only cleansing in which we're told Jesus spoke of the temple's destruction. And as we learn in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 60 and following, and Mark chapter 14, verses 57 and following, at the end of Jesus' public ministry, that becomes the key issue on which he is tried and condemned before the high council. You remember, they brought in false witnesses. What did those witnesses say? He said he would destroy the temple. They're referring to this event at the very beginning of his public ministry. So when the Jews say it has taken 46 years to build this temple, they don't mean that the temple was actually completed. The temple wouldn't actually be completed for another 34 years. It would be 63 AD, just seven years before the destruction of the temple, that it was finally completed. What they mean is that it had taken 46 years to get it to its current condition, but they miss Jesus' point entirely. Jesus isn't talking about the stone structure in which they stand. He's talking about His own body. As John says, He and the rest of the disciples eventually came to understand this. That's why He says, destroy this temple, meaning if or when you destroy this temple. He's not saying, I'm going to destroy the temple. He's saying, when you destroy this temple... I will raise it up in three days. They will put him to death. Ironically, on the judicial grounds of what he now says about their destroying him. But though they put him to death, yet he will rise on the third day, triumphant over sin and death forever. Leon Morris comments on this passage saying, quote, there is irony in the fact that ultimately the Jews themselves were to be the means of bringing about the sign they asked Christ to produce and which they did not recognize when it came. There's further irony in that to put Jesus to death was to offer the one sacrifice that can truly expiate sin and thus doom the temple as a place for the offering of sacrifice. In other words, it's precisely because these men put Jesus to death that the stone temple in which they stand will become obsolete. 
It becomes obsolete the moment Jesus rises from the dead. His resurrected human nature becomes the last holy place, and He becomes the last high priest in propitiation for our sins. It's by virtue of His once-for-all sacrifice that those old covenant sacrifices must be put away because His self-sacrifice fulfills all that they previously signified. In this way, God graciously raises up His house once for all, inviting all to enter into it and to commune with Him through faith union with His incarnate Son. Now, besides this this biblical theology, don't miss the fact that though these men see the sign of Jesus risen from the dead, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Though many men see many signs that Jesus performs during His public ministry, signs and wonders, miraculous signs and wonders, It's not simply by virtue of seeing those signs and wonders that they come to believe. I had a conversation with a um, physics professor at a local college in eastern Kentucky uh, at one time along the way. uh, Me and a few students were doing evangelism on on the campus. And our question for the day, the way we would do it is a question for the day. Our question for the day is, is there a God? And Whether the person said yes or no, the next question, the follow-up question was, how do you know? Is there a God? How do you know? So I already knew where the physics professor stood because I had lunch with him. We we talked about these things, you know. Um, He went to a concert with me at one point. Uh, So we knew one another. And so I asked him, he he was very willing to talk, is there a God? He said, I don't know. I don't know. Now, this is a man who's very militantly atheist and anti-Christian in every sense of that word uh, in his Facebook presence, making fun of the Christian church at every turn. I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, I don't have enough evidence. I said, what evidence do you need? He sat there and thought, he said, you know, I've never really thought about that before. So I thought that was interesting. If you know you don't have enough evidence, surely you've thought about what it would take, Right? So he thought about it for a second. He said, you know, if I were in a football stadium where there was 20,000 other people and we saw some miraculous sign or wonder, he didn't put it in those terms, but that's what he meant, some miracle that was undeniable, this was God, I would believe. I said to him, the Bible says the first generation that left Egypt after the Exodus witnessed God appear to them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They witnessed God separate the waters of the Red Sea. They walked across his own dry ground. They witnessed God descend in a, in, a, in a glory cloud upon Mount Sinai. They heard God speak to them audibly from the mountain. They saw the mountain tremble and quake. They saw many other signs and wonders, not to mention the ones that had already been performed in Egypt, for which the 10 plagues that God sent so that they would be redeemed. They witnessed all of those miraculous signs and wonders, and yet they still, according to the author of Hebrews chapter 3, they still didn't believe. Most of them did not believe. I said, it's not about seeing. It's It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And then I shared 
the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus says, even if a man should rise from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. He said, you know, now that you say those things, uh, you know, if, if we saw something like that in, the, uh, in a stadium like that, I guess we could all be hallucinating at the same time. So you never know. So he confirmed exactly what I just said to him. Let's move on to the third section, the final section, verses 23 through 25. We see the sanctification of God's house. Look at verses 23 through 25. The text says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So though Jesus refused to perform a miraculous sign when the Jews demanded it, he nonetheless performed many such miraculous signs in the presence of others during this same festival, so at this same time. And having seen those signs, John says that many believed in his name. But we have to remember one of the main themes of John's gospel, which we've already touched upon, is this. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. Sinners do not come to faith in Christ by seeing miraculous signs and wonders with their natural eyes. That is not how it works. Sinners must be given spiritual eyes that they might see and understand spiritual things and therefore believe in Christ. And God gives sinners such eyes through the effectual call, through the new birth. That's exactly where the text is headed. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the next chapter and says, we know that you must be a prophet come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless he's from God. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so that's what John now highlights at the end of chapter 2 as he prepares us for that dialogue that Jesus will have with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Though many appear, appear to entrust themselves to Jesus, they appear to have believed in Him after seeing His signs and wonders, they don't actually believe because they haven't actually been effectually called and therefore, John says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. In other words, he did not receive them as his own. John then raises the issue of witness bearing once again. Did you notice that? Witness bearing is a key issue in the gospel of John. It's something that we saw at the very beginning of John's gospel. John the Baptist was sent as a witness to bear witness about the light. There are actually seven named witnesses in the gospel of John to Jesus' divine glory. And so witness bearing is absolutely key in John's gospel for the establishment of the truthfulness of Jesus' messianic claims. But notice what he now says about Jesus in relation to other human beings. Jesus himself needed no one to bear witness about man. Now why? 
Why doesn't Jesus need someone to bear witness about man? To bear testimony in order to, in order to uncover the truth about man? Well, because Jesus himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus, as we saw with Philip and Nathaniel, or pardon, with Peter and Nathaniel, Jesus sees through everyone he comes into contact with. He sees their souls. Nothing remains hidden. He needs no one to bear witness in matters of justice, in matters of truth. He knows the truth. He sees it. It's right there in front of him. But what does he see? When he looks into the, the soul of humanity, what does he see? Does he see a spark of divinity? Does he, speak, does he see an essentially good core? Well, no. Jesus sees men in the estate of sin and misery, totally depraved and therefore unable to believe in him unto salvation apart from the effectual call. In this special knowledge that Jesus had of others, we see clear evidence of His deity. Jesus is not like any other man who was ever born of woman in the world. He is different because He is the eternally begotten Son of God. After the incarnation, He is two natures, fully human, fully divine, United together in the one person, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son. And so in matters of justice, in matters of justice, there is only one in the text of Scripture, only one in the history of the world, only one person in matters of justice who doesn't need witnesses. And that's God, because God already knows. God sees the truth. He knows the truth. Jesus needs no witnesses about what's in man because he is fully God. Beloved, in our text for this afternoon, we have seen the desecration of God's house and the, the way the Jews polluted the ground that God had set apart for his worship at Mount Zion, at the Temple Mound. How seriously does God take the purity of His worship? Well, we have an answer to that in Jesus' prophetic action. He takes the purity of His worship with absolute seriousness, which is why He commands us in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 28 through 29 saying, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Notice that, acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We've also seen the way Jesus Himself has become the last or, or eschatological house of God or temple of God in His resurrection from the dead. Jesus glorified humanity as that final holy place through which we enter into the presence of God as a kingdom of priests to offer acceptable sacrifices of praise before Him. And unlike the Jews who polluted the old temple, Jesus is absolutely committed to the sanctity of the new temple. Jesus only entrusts Himself to His elect people. He only entrusts Himself to those 
that he first cleanses. This is, again, part of the glory of the new covenant. This morning I mentioned one of those glories is that in the old covenant system, you might have a king, a prophet, or a priest, and because they're still indwelled by sin, they might fail. Or perhaps you've got a king who's the son of a king, who's the son of a king, who's now your king, who is not a believer at all. That can never happen in a new covenant context because Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and king, the sinless one who reigns over us eternally, who speaks his word to us eternally, who intercedes for us eternally. And he has become the uncorruptible temple of God the dwelling place of God with man. Uncorruptible because he cleanses all those he receives as his own into himself, you see. He cleanses them with the outpoured Holy Spirit, regenerating them from within, eventually glorifying them on the last day. Jesus is absolutely committed to the sanctity of the new temple, which is himself. He only entrusts himself to his elect people. Only they receive the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only they have access to God through faith in Christ. Only they enter into his courts to worship and serve him. They do that spiritually. Jesus is going to come back to this Later in John's gospel, as he teaches the disciples in the upper room, you remember what Jesus does in John chapter 13. It's, it's something that's, uh, uh, that's uh, special to John's gospel. It's unique to John's gospel. None of the other evangelists mention this, um, this moment, but Jesus takes the form of a servant, wraps the towel around his waist to do what? To wash the feet of his disciples, to cleanse them, you see. Why is he cleansing their feet? Because the ground on which they stand spiritually in him is holy ground. Right? You remember what Peter says? You're not going to cleanse my feet. Jesus says, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part with me. Peter says, well, not only my feet, but also my head and my, my hands, my whole body. Wash me. He says, you're already clean, right? You're already clean. What he means is I've already regenerated you. I have cleansed you essentially. And what I'm now showing you is the way you must seek to cleanse one another, to keep keep the temple of God pure. Is God concerned with the purity of his church? You bet. Very concerned with the purity of of his church. We see this all come to its final culminated situation in Revelation chapter 21, 22 through 27. John sees an apocalyptic vision of the final day. 
the day of Christ's second coming when all things are made new. And notice what he says. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Jesus came to purify the dwelling place of God with man, and He is that dwelling place for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for a time to spend in Your Word. We thank You that Jesus is the last temple. And we give You praise that He is the one who is able to cleanse all those who enter into it. Father, we acknowledge before You that this is all of Your grace. None of us deserves to be thus cleansed, and yet You and Your mercy and compassion have determined to set Your saving affection upon some. We give You praise for this. We do pray that You would continue to cleanse us each day, continue to fit us for the glory that's to come on the last day. We lift up before You, especially in this, con- in this uh, uh, context, our covenant children, these to whom You've held out the covenant blessing of life and salvation in their baptism. We pray, Father, that You might grant that in, in due course of time they would indeed take hold of those promises, that they might be cleansed from within by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that they uh, might be found in Christ. Father, we pray that You would continue to grant us Your blessing throughout this day, that we might continue to worship and serve You, uh, keeping Your day holy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.